Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to the Dog Track, Greyhounds. This is Richmond Till We Die, an episode-by-episode conversation about the Apple TV Plus show Ted Lasso, where we explore the characters, their relationships to each other, and how they are able to make us laugh until we can hardly breathe one moment and then feel with the deepest parts of our hearts the next. For this episode, our conversation is all about Season 2, Episode 12, titled Inverting the Pyramid of Success. It was written by Jason Sudeikis directed by Declan Lowney and edited by AJ Catalina. I'm Marissa, and this is my first rodeo. I'm Christian and Brett. I am never deferring to you on a penalty kick. You will have to pry it from my cold, dead toes. Gross. And I'm Brett, and I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. But right now, I'm staring at Christian's outfit. As per usual. Yes, tell the people (laughs) what you're wearing. Double-decker, a 107-ist Trek jacket, which I'll explain in a second, over a Portland Thorns t-shirt. And this is the first time we've recorded a regular conversation episode since the Portland Thorns became your 2022 NWSL champions. But there was a little less peering than usual (laughs) because in a lot of ways it was a painful season that was capped off by a moment of joy. It's a whole big thing and a lot to go into for a soccer casual audience such as ours. But what came to light was um, just how nefarious the ownership and management of the club had been in trying to cover up uh, abuse by a former manager, player abuse by a former manager. And the owner of the club, he really um, like stonewalled investigations that happened and tried to gum up the works and lied to people over and over again, gaslit the community and whatnot. And all of this stuff is coming out as the season is progressing. And so it is an amazing feat from the women on the team to come together and to be able to achieve at that highest level. But I know that along the way, it was also very painful for them too. And so they are to be commended, but then at the same time, there also needs to be accountability to just like protect people and be decent to them and respect them. And so that is then where the 107ist comes in that's kind of like the supporters trust for Portland soccer. They coordinate the things at the Timbers army, 
and the Rose City Riveters do for the Thorns and the Timbers. And they've really kind of been up against it to try to figure out how do we support players while at the same time trying to hold ownership and, and management accountable. And so that has caused them to do their work differently than they have in the past, um, but to really continue to reach out and um, support and let the players know that as fans, they are there for them, even if some fans feel like they can't support this ownership group with money, even if they feel like they can't support in the, in the normal ways they would, they still want to see the players do well. So it's a tricky thing. And maybe sometime we'll just kind of have an episode packing that all in, but I just wanted to do a little celebrating and a little bit of um, sell the teams merit. Yeah. People should stop sucking. Yeah. That's what I say too. You know, what didn't suck though. Was this episode? It did not. It was very comfortable. You know, 201, the first episode of this season, there was a lot of consternation heading into it because we didn't know what to expect. Would that Ted Lasso magic still be there? And what they gave us, they gave us, we called it before that comfortable pair of sweatpants to put on. And there was a lot of relief. And then we went through it. It was quite the journey through season two. But then we get to the end. And once again, not that the whole entire like last episode was easy, but it did feel like the comfortable pair of sweatpants again. And there was that moment then when you kind of like realize, oh, Jason wrote this one. Like, no wonder it feels so comfortable. He went and he took the wheel and it gave feel, the people what they teddy. wanted. Yeah, it feels teddy. <laughs> yes, I was commenting on that too, that there were so many Ted-isms in this episode. Before we get too deep into it, should we remind the folks what happened in this episode? We should. Let's do it. Ted Lasso has good friends. They do their best to rally around him after Trent Krim's explosive revelations hit the pages of the newspaper, though those outside of Ted's inner circle struggle to know how to engage him under such circumstances. All things considered, Ted is handling things well and, in fact, seems at least momentarily freed of some of his burdens. Keeley's gorgeous mug has hit the glossy pages of Vanity Fair, which is a nice change of pace from her page six appearances as an influencer. <laughs> but Roy doesn't make the cut for the spread, and he's afraid the same might happen in his relationship with Keeley. Where does their relationship stand exactly? It's fine. Probably. We hope. Richmond need a positive result in their final match to win promotion back to the Premier League. The first half is a total dud, but the boys sorted out at halftime and managed to exercise their demons and make the bounce back to prime time. It's Nate's strategy that leads the team to success, but he's in no place to enjoy the positive result. Overcome with rage, jealousy, and any number of other dark emotions, he unleashes on Ted at halftime and then storms off as everyone else is enjoying the sweet, sweet taste of a tie. In his wake, he leaves a path of destruction and sadness. Nobody is sad when Sam finally makes the decision to stay at AFC Richmond. Edwin Akufo is super extra about the whole thing, however, and Sam is once again cool under pressure, taking it all in stride. It's a poopy situation for sure, but after all that he's experienced and learned of late, he knows it's nothing to get too worked up about. We come to find out that when Nate stormed off after the match, he thundered his way across London to work for Rupert at West Ham United. Boo. Blech. The Apprentice has found a new master, and it's all just very dark. And that's all the recap you're going to get. 
Okay, again, we've already started nibbling around the edges of some of the content. Premature agustulation. Yeah. <laughs> it happens sometimes. But, like, even just from, like, knowing the title of this episode, it's a great title to the episode. Inverting the Pyramid of Success. What do they call it when you do, like, the puzzles that, like, are connected by a word in the middle? Venn diagram? <laughs> sure. What are you, you talking about? Like oh, the, like the before and after, like, on Wheel of Fortune? Yes, it's like a like before and after Mar Wheel of Fortune. Oh, like Steve Martin short. Right. So we have the Inverting the Pyramid and then the Pyramid of Success, both of which have already been referenced in this show. And so ending this middle act with that title of the episode is just so amazing. And I felt like not only was it clever and cute, but also really tied in thematically as well. Beard's reading his Inverting the Pyramid book to begin the episode. Mm -hmm. He's been reading it a lot. It's got a lot of bookmarks in it. So many little stickies and stuff in there. Clearly, he's absorbing some things about soccer history and strategy. And we do get some success thanks to how Ted handles his team and like how he leads them. There's also that long shot of Nate staring at the pyramid of success in Ted's office at one point in the episode, which one thing that I noticed at the bottom of the pyramid in that shot is enthusiasm. It's one of the building blocks at the very on the very bottom level. And it just made me think of when Arlo White at the end of this episode says, the joy is back in Richmond. Like that enthusiasm mm. is there. So like it feels like the team has rebuilt from a place of enthusiasm and joy and is reaching that pinnacle, which I think is something like technical excellence or something. And so the fact that you would invert that pyramid, I think speaks to Nate and his exit and kind of what may lay ahead for him at West Ham United, AKA the dark side FC. Before we get too down in the depths of despair, I loved how this episode felt like an 80s, early 90s sitcom. Big sitcom energy. Yes, there was like the sort of sitcom, like almost like the melodrama of sitcom was there. One thing we noticed was how it sort of felt like Jason was firmly in the driver's seat script wise, but narratively, it kind of felt like different narratives kept grabbing the wheel and yanking us into different lanes on the freeway. It was like there was a lot going on and a lot of weaving together of these these different character storylines. I feel like we got a lot of different little one-on-one -on -one or like smaller group strains that we don't always get in these Ted episodes. And so it felt very, that made it feel very 80s, 90s sitcom to me. Well, we had to wrap it up. And I think it was, I think it was successful because a lot of times at the end of a season, you still feel, obviously there's cliffhangers, but you still feel like these characters, like nothing's really happened to them. Obviously, we said through the whole season, a lot has happened, but it did feel like you said, Christian, putting on a, a comfy pair of pants, right? It was like, this feels like we we know where these characters have gone and like the terrible things that have happened, like the beard episode. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's like, oh, there's some hope. Right. And it feels like it might not kill us. And that felt really good. It, and even just like, you know, the moment with May in the pub, you know, where she just gets her little moment of like helping Ted out and, you know, just doing it in the most fabulous and extra fashion, you know, whip ripping the newspaper out of his hands and, you know, dancing off. Yeah. 
Like that could have been the cold open to a Cheers episode. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you want to go where everyone knows your name. Everybody knows yeah, okay. your name, Brett. It's not that well known. If you're going to jump well in known. and sing, you better know what's going on. <laughs> Speaking of Cheers, George went. Uncle George. I've heard of him. Where'd he go? <laughs> <laughs> he is uncle to Jason Sudeikis because he is Jason's mom's brother, Kathy Sudeikis. And that's how uncles work. That's how uncles work. One of the ways uncles work. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that maybe warmed my heart the most about this episode is when Roy shouted out his old school travel agent, Kathy, who issued him paper plane tickets and he and Keely have a nice little bit about that but it was so sweet because Jason's mom Kathy is I guess technically a travel agent maybe a better way to describe her would be a very accomplished travel advisor she is part of the American Society of Travel Advisors there was a point in time in which she was the national president and CEO of the ASTA she was the 2008 ASTA Travel Agent of the Year and is an ASTA Hall of Fame inductee. Definitely one of my favorite Easter eggs from the whole two seasons. Yeah, super fun. Love that. And there's just something really, really cool about getting paper tickets to like, you know, to fly with. Like even when you're at the airport and something happens and they like print it out for you, it's like, oh my gosh, this feels like so real and so exciting. And like, I don't know. Like, like Keely says, like you should be able to smoke on the airplane or something. <laughs> Another thing that excited me about this episode is that Mascot Idol is absolutely a show that I would watch if it existed. <laughs> like just seeing cute puppies and they get to decide which of them is going to become the AFC Richmond mascot. Like I would watch that. Totally. And like different animals for like different, you know, <laughs> teams and stuff. I Yeah, I'd be all about that. Unless they were birds. If I didn't have to be in the same room with them, I'd be fine watching it. As long as I'm not under threat of a good beaking, I'm good. Just mainly getting pooped on. Yeah. I have just like really bad luck with that, which some people say is like good luck, but they're the people who aren't getting shit on. (laughs) (laughs) And the last thing I want to know before we get into any deeper into conversation is. Wait, 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 wait. Did they actually tell us who won? I guess we see the we dog see, at the end. Which one is it? Yeah, it's it's Macy Greyhound. You always make me smile <laughs> when I'm feeling down. So I think that means Tina Fayhound went to the glue factory. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Damn, Gina. Just kidding. She found she, a nice home. <laughs> she gets to stand in the goal while Danny practices penalty shots. <laughs> <laughs> no Greyhounds were harmed in the making uh. of this episode. <laughs> The last thing I want to say that's on the more superficial level before we get stuck in is there's a moment at the end of the episode where Ted and Rebecca are sharing a drink right before the episode ends. And the way that Hannah Waddingham can chug an entire glass of chilled wine is a superpower that I wish I had. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 
18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What a horrible way to, like, start your day, right? And I'm not talking about the whole world knowing that you just had a panic attack. I'm talking about that depressing piece of cereal that plops <laughs> into the bowl. <laughs> like, no, there's no way your day is going to be good when you start it that way. I'm sorry. Like, go back to sleep and try again. You make a, po- a good point. Under the circumstances, things turn around pretty quickly because as the cereal plops, Ted's phone starts blowing up and he gets a lot of affirmations from people who are close to him and want to fill the role for him that he often fills for other people, which is being for them when things are really difficult. Yeah. It's nice that he experiences that deluge of positive energy support as he's eating his one giant piece of cereal before he leaves his flat or apartment or whatever, because once he gets out into the real world, it's like, coming out to the cold light of day. It's not, it's not going great for him. The paparazzi's there. Everyone is reading the paper, which who even reads the paper anymore? That's what I said. And then we get that line, you know, from Ted later on, but I'm, I was like, really? Like seriously, everyone's walking <laughs> around with, was very skeptical. with actual newspapers. No, I'm sorry. That's, but it wouldn't be good TV if they weren't reading the paper about his panic attack. Would, can they just be looking on their phones? Like, could. let's be real about it. But maybe British people are different than us. Maybe. I mean, they are, but maybe they're different in that way, too. But, I mean, we talked about earlier how, like, the the episode kind of takes us one direction and then shifts. But it's it's really like that throughout for just Ted's experience in this, right, where everyone's found out he's had a panic attack. Because, yes, we we see the newspaper, but then he gets help from his friends on his phone. And then... He goes outside and the paparazzi and all these like judgy McJudgerson people just like walking down the street like you don't have problems like (laughs) deal with it. But then he comes across Beard and like I'm sorry but like Beard is, is a weird soul but he's one of the most like loyal people. I mean we often give like lots of credit to like Rebecca and Keely and like all these people who are like very affectionate with their emotions and their friendships but like like Ted and Beard, like that's a really healthy and interesting relationship. And Beard is one of those friends that you just need to just be sad with you when you're sad and like happy with you when you're happy. And like the fact that they don't always have to say anything like Beard is just there. And I just think like obviously that's like a sometimes a healthy way to deal with things. But he's, you know offered to be there if if Ted needs to talk but he also will just act like he doesn't know anything that's going on while he has a newspaper in his back pocket you know right yes he he knew that it was not the time nor the place to sort of begin that conversation or to have it and you know it's very possible that that's something they get around to talking about more in depth later we see them in the scene later in this episode where they're in the pub together and Beard is (laughs) asking Ted like you know it's Nate you gotta you gotta come you gotta ask him to apologize you need to 
confront him or at least sort of like bring this up. So I love that we get a not just one, but a couple of really good Ted and Beard moments because there were moments earlier in the season where we commented that they didn't seem super in sync with one another about how they wanted the season to go or the team or decisions that were being made. And it feels nice as we close the season for them to be getting back in sync and feeling really lined up and feeling really aligned with their values and priorities. And just to see their very real and like you said, healthy friendship intact and sort of firing on all cylinders. And he really does need beard in this moment because this is a lot of our worst nightmare, like our secret greatest fear having our most vulnerable issues aired broadly. It's hard enough for people to talk about mental health, even in, in small groups, sometimes even with their family members. So then to just have it put out there feels like such a deep transgression, which explains why the reaction toward Nate has been so intense from people who watch the show. Like people are really legitimately angry at him. And I think that's because when they put themselves in Ted's shoes, they feel as though that's one of the worst things that anybody can do to you. And they also think I should really sell these on eBay because these are really expensive Nikes. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Yeah, it's it would be hard to imagine someone that you are so close to really just selling you out in such a brazen and horrible way. Like, and I think yes, that's what makes us. I mean, we we came into this episode, we like we everyone, the viewers came into this episode like at an 11 on the angry scale at Nate. Like we were not at all ready to give him any grace and he doesn't do a lot in the episode to, to relieve that. But even for Ted, I think it's interesting that he sort of seems like over it almost, or like sort of in a, at a place like he has a piece about it by now, which I think is really interesting and maybe just speaks to the great work that has happened between him and Dr. Sharon throughout this season. But yeah, it's it, it it's not a great look from Nate, and it says a lot about Ted that he is sort of willing to still give Nate the time and space to come talk to him about it, knowing that knowing that he knows that it was Nate. But still, um, I don't know. I don't think I would have been able to be that patient. I would have wanted to confront someone right away because it just feels unforgivable. I don't I don't know that like Ted is just being gracious and like. I believe that this goes back to Ted as a character and his like deepest fear is to like fail at something or quit something. Right. Mm. And so I think rather than just getting over it or acting like he's fine with Nate, I think it's more of like a a competition within himself where it's like, he feels like he can still save Nate. There's something redeeming in that relationship still. And it's part of his own like competition within himself to like do the work to win him back. Right. Right. To like get him back in the fold and to, and to believe again and to be positive about what's happening. And so, I mean, I think, yeah, Ted's Ted's a great person. And yes, the act of like extending that opportunity for like grace and forgiveness and like you know, waiting for him to come to you or acting like, you know, you're not going to call someone out on their crazy, ridiculous behavior. I really think it, it 
it says a lot about sort of him and like what he expects in himself and less of what he thinks of Nate. There are a couple of quotes that sort of tie this together for me, like one at the beginning of the episode, one at the end. The one at the beginning is when the crusty old dude who oftentimes is taunting <laughs> yes. said in public. The wanker guy. The wanker guy. Yeah, yeah. He, They have this interaction and then he comes back and he says, just do the work, son. And he says it in a way that is sincere, that is a little bit speculative, trying to maybe figure out what to say. But it's a very true statement at its core when you're struggling yeah like you have to do the work things won't change unless you do the work you got to be very careful because you don't just want to spin your wheels and it's not so formulaic that you can just do abc and then like voila things are all great again but when we have these struggles we do have to do the work and then at the end of the episode ted's in the press conference and he says i want to share with you all my story and discuss the way we discuss and deal with mental health and athletics. And for him, that really does feel like a doing the work in a healthy way. And one of the things that cracked me up isn't quite the right way to say it, but... Amused you? Amused me. Maybe uh, made that quote from Ted stick out to me a little more was at the beginning of the episode the soccer Saturday guys mm-hmm. are sitting around and, and they're talking and um, <laughs> they, they say they're talking about mental toughness and the examples that they give for that are famous football managers, Alex Ferguson, Brian Clough, Bill Shankly. And the one that really stuck out to me was the Brian Clough because he was a super successful manager after he totally flamed out as the manager of Leeds United in just 44 days. He came in with a ton of hubris, not in a mentally healthy place, went scorched earth on the whole thing, alienated everybody, and burned his way out of which at that time was one of the biggest clubs in the world. And so for those guys to hold him up as an example, when Ted really shouldn't be that, that would be bad. And then Ted brings something that Brian Clough doesn't, which is openness and vulnerability. I really like the way that you framed that, Christian. And even though it's a sucky situation for Ted to have to deal with, I like that ultimately where we get in the episode is him in that press conference after the game talking about how he wants to share his story and bring up this discussion around mental health in sports. And so I think it speaks to the growth of him as a character and I do want to keep talking about him and Nate. Let's maybe put a pin in that, save save our big discussion about their showdown slash argument uh, for a little bit later in the episode. But on the topic of character growth, so many of the other main and supporting characters have shown so much growth throughout the season. For as much as we dislike Nate right now, everybody else seems very lovable people who weren't lovable at one point in time we're looking at you jamie i feel very well and even i mean rebecca like she is she was not nice at first true yes jamie and keely had issues and wasn't too sure about roy but here we are and and i want to hug them all yes i am just so 
blown away by how much I love Jamie as a character by the end of this season. <laughs> like the way he ends this season and not just this episode, because we talked about it in episode 10 as well. And episode 11, just like he's had so many great moments as a character throughout this season. But just the awareness and the maturity at the very end of this episode where he gives away the last penalty, <laughs> as you joked about in our introductions, Christian, they they make a point of saying he hasn't missed a single penalty all season. Danny missed probably the only penalty he took this season <laughs> or missed might be the wrong word, but missed fired. But it's like the the parallel of making the extra pass, except he's passing off this game tying slash feels like a winning goal to Danny and sort of letting Danny overcome this darkness that was in his past. And we have that real full circle moment for both of them as characters, because even going back to season one, that healthy slash not so healthy competition of the two aces that we had in the middle of the season, you know, now they really feel like two aces. Like they're really just like connected and uh, their whole bit with the shoes and episode 10 was great. And I loved seeing the way that, that, that all wrapped up in this episode too. So particularly impressed with Jamie, but yeah, like you mentioned, Roy has grown a lot. Rebecca. Yeah. We, it's easy to forget how awful she seemed like on the surface. Right. Actually was right. I mean, caveat, she was like hurting her people, hurt people. And we talked about that a lot, but yes, she, there was good in there and it has finally like, it is flourishing. The way Jamie comes looking for Roy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's not waiting for Roy to come get him. He's not shying away from like this thing that he did. Like it sure seems scary, but he is going looking for Roy to apologize and to to hopefully make it right. And then again, like you said, Roy has also grown because as much as he hates it, he doesn't punch him. He doesn't headbutt him. He doesn't do anything right. He he forgives him. Yes. Later on, we get the headbutt into the hug, right? Affectionate headbutt. Yes. But it's like wow these moments are so special and yeah you just like want to start hugging everyone and believe me i understand that like headbutt into hug feeling where it's just like you have to get it out but then you know you can hug it out so it's it's all right not that i've ever actually headbutted someone it just sounds like way too painful and like <laughs> why? why why put your head through that i don't know <laughs> the image that sums up jamie's maturity and sweetness with some of his patented aloofness for me is in the locker room when Roy's going, psyching everybody up, dapping everybody up. Jamie's excited to see him. Jamie (laughs) puts his fists out. Roy does not dap Jamie up. And Jamie... He's not quite ready for it. Yeah, he's contemplative. He shrugs and he just daps himself up and he he gets on with life and he goes out. He doesn't pout. He doesn't become the victim. He doesn't, you know, like he normally would, right? Make it about himself. And yeah, I guess like there's hope right for Nate in this next season's arc, because I remember in season one, we thought there was no way we could ever care about Jamie. Like he had done too many things like as hilarious as he is as a character. Like you just think he's really, I don't know what the word would be a douche. Like (laughs) we were, we were over him at one point. Yeah. We really, we really were. And then now I just like think like, it's wild that we're talking about him with smiles on our faces, right? And just, we just want to hug him and we're so proud of him and he hands off the ball to Danny. And so you think there has to be a redemption arc for Nate, right? And hopefully fans can maybe rally 
around that and maybe has it been i i worry as a fan has it been too long have we lived with this hate for nate <laughs> too long? but for real right yeah. like i'm not trying to say like hurry up and and start season three i Although mean we are saying we, that we are saying that um but but i wonder like have they left the fans in this weird purgatory of like nate hate for too long tbd as much as keely and roy have matured and become more fully formed characters together things are a little more iffy as a as a couple as a pair did you notice in the episode i think it's two times maybe more than that keely tells roy she like loves him so much yeah and roy does not say it back he does things that are loving toward her like obviously like the supporting her with the vanity fair thing and her you know starting her own business and being the boss and this trip you know he shows lots and lots of love but he doesn't say it back and i i don't know this last rewatch like it kind of caught me in a way that like i was like why why didn't he say something and it doesn't seem to affect her like at least in those moments but for some reason as a watcher as a viewer, it like bothered me that he didn't say it back. The two logical explanations and both of these could be true. One is that he doesn't know how to do that. That's not a muscle he's worked. That is not something that is comfortable enough in his vocabulary to get it out. And then the other is just the fear of rejection. He is afraid that it's not going to work. He is afraid that she is going to move past him. And so if he puts himself out there, then it might not work out the way that he wants it to. Or even if she says, I love you, if he says, I love you back and that doesn't work, that could feel really painful and hurtful. And so I get it. He's trying, but he's just not quite there yet. And at least from Roy's standpoint, it would seem that that fear or at least the feelings that he is made to feel there's a little bit of truth to that because they do this photo shoot, right? And then the preview comes through for the Vanity Fair article and he's not in any of the photos. And even though he admits to the Diamond Dog ad hoc meeting quorum that, yeah, he really hates doing those things, it did hurt his feeling that he wasn't in <laughs> any of the pictures, only the one. So maybe that's part of the problem too. We got yeah. to get a larger vocabulary of feelings for Roy. But you know, he talks about how she looks so great on her own without him. And you can tell that's something that is hurting him in his heart. And I don't know. It's I don't I hope that doesn't happen. I don't think that's what's going to happen. We don't we don't do a lot of speculating on the show because it's made fools of us already more than once. But I don't know. I like that this show is featuring this interesting and complex relationship. And it's not really doing the typical TV things where we're making a big deal out of nothing. I feel like these are the sort of not a big deal, big deal things that real life couples have to deal with. And that's what makes their dynamic interesting. Right. They're, they're sort of at different crossroads in their careers and lives. And, and that feels like a very real reason for a couple to end things. Right. It's, it's not a, you cheated on me. So I hate you and we're done. It's like a, I, I need to go do this like because this is my career now or what I need to do and I need to focus my energy that way. And 
for Roy, his like big star, you know, being a soccer, a football player is done. And so his big moment, I feel like for him is like it's past him. Right. He quite literally is taking a vacation. Like she's at this point where like there's absolutely no way she could take a vacation and not focus on being the boss ass bitch that she is. Yeah. And it's probably obviously none of us know what it's like to be a former famous and uh, trophy international trophy winning athlete, but it must be strange for them to be on completely different trajectories, even though Roy's high was so high, like, and not to say, you know, things are terrible for him. Like he has, he has a, a good job with people that he enjoys working with, we assume, but you know, like you said, it's just tough coming from all that momentum and kind of that position that he was in at such a higher height just to be in the public consciousness all the time. Whereas Keely is kind of making the opposite, the complete opposite of that, where she maybe is becoming less of an influencer, less Instagrammy all the time, but she's in her career advancing leaps and bounds to the sort of executive, like head of a PR firm. Like that's, it is, yeah, it's the tension is real and it makes me nervous, but I remain hopeful that they will work things out in the end. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to our boy Higgins because <laughs> we don't get a ton of him in this season, you know, but his moments are just brilliant and lovely like he is. But uh, I love this like back and forth, which does feel very like sitcom-y where yes. <laughs> Keely comes to him for advice and he starts to like kind of like jump in like he knows what she wants and you know she keeps basically saying no 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 but then when we get to like the meat and the heart of like what the advice needs to be he of course says something profound and and heartfelt and it hits the right note and so i just think i i love him so much yes that's another moment where this show bypasses all of the typical kind of sitcom slash drama tv tropes and it's like, no, it's not because you're betraying her. It's not that you're, you know, it's not if you leave, like you'll end your friendship or like it's going to be a huge like scandal. Like Keely just says, I just don't want to appear ungrateful. And what Higgins tells her is really wise that if she is a good mentor, a great mentor, which we think she is, that she she expects that you'll move on and she wants that for you. And that's exactly what Keely needs to hear. The other time the show totally just subverts and bypasses that like big dramatic moment is when Keely actually talks to Rebecca. <laughs> it was which so great. I say because they don't even actually talk in the episode. It, it's she comes in and is like, hi, Rebecca. Or I think she says, hey, babe. And then we just cut to them sobbing on the couch like they've already had the conversation and we only see the aftermath, which I think is genius writing because it just it it strays away from that kind of the confession is the important part for right. them. It's the the after, like, how are we going to deal with this? It's all right. We've already dealt with it. The relationship remains intact right. and it's just going to, it evolves. And that's mm-hmm. again, going to be really interesting to see how that works out in season three. We don't quite know exactly where Keely and Roy stand, but we're hopeful coming into this episode. We were hopeful that Sam would stay. And in fact, he did not break up with AFC Richmond, Yay! <laughs> but decided to stick around and, that was nice for everybody, I thought. I thought that was really nice. And again, Sam Obasanya is just like such a cool guy. And like, I don't know, we talk about like the way Ted can handle conflict. Like Sam just stands there like with a smile on his beautiful face, 
looking good just in every scene that he's in, by the way. Um, much style. But, okay, Edwin Akufu is like ridiculous right like <laughs> talk about as billionaires are wont to be <laughs> yes i mean he hasn't bought twitter yet but <laughs> wow like talking about how silly some of the moments feel and like sitcommy like this feels really sitcommy to me like this whole storming out and just like being making an absolute scene yes. i don't know I, man the first time i think people were really jarred by it Especially, we talked a bit about the Nigeria-Ghana dynamic in our last episode. Yes. And if you didn't have that on your radar going into this episode, then that heel turn maybe could have been too much. Or just like (laughs) so out of the blue that the first time it was a knockout punch when you encountered it. Yeah, I think now it just feels more silly to me like on the rewatch. But yes, the first time like Brett and I were kind of like, what? Like what just happened? Like that was that was weird, right? That was like really out of pocket. Did like, we fever dream that? Yes, yes. It feels a little out of pocket humor wise for the show, I think. But on rewatch, it seems somehow lighter and just weird, silly rather than like offensively silly. Yeah, people are pretty protective of Sam too, and so for Sam especially to be confronted like that can be a lot to take in because I think it kicks up our protectionism of no, not our, not our guy. We love him and he's staying. And then (laughs) Higgins like watching from the window. (laughs) It was an interesting, like hall of mirrors moment to the end of season one, where we had the very kind of serious and dramatic moment of, Jamie's dad yelling at him and like throwing the shoes and Ted sees that happen through the window. It was, this was like the weird, like much like bizarro world, world, lower stakes, less violent, like version of that slightly less violent. So I don't know for whatever reason, it kind of reminded me of that because you had the whole, like this is an overreaction to something. And then someone watching someone watch someone (laughs) overreact to the thing. It was just, it was a lot, but the performance. So much poop too. I felt like I was watching (laughs) like my children have like a tantrum, like asking them to go to bed and everything's like poop on this and poop on that. Yeah. Edwin Akufu, are your insides? Okay. (laughs) Do you need help? (laughs) Yeah, that was, it's a really funny bit of physical comedy from Sam Richardson. That we can enjoy more now as it's aged like yes. fine Because wine. we're friends with him too. 100%. <laughs> so that interaction, the Sam and Edwin, was difficult to watch and has since softened. What was difficult to watch and has not softened are the final interactions between Nate and Ted, specifically in the locker room at halftime of the match. But even some of the things that happen after that Still really tough to process every time I watch this episode back. Yeah, Nate has been on a downward trajectory for so much of this season. Uh, You know, we've been sort of tracking those moments. And talking around it. And talking around it. Because we didn't want to jump to this point too early in our discussions. But I don't know if it's... I feel like even knowing what's coming, it's harder to watch earlier in the season now like on rewatch it just makes it hurt (laughs) it's like ripping open a scar every time because it's i mean it's gonna be so interesting to explore in season three i think but just the way that nate 
got to where he is is fascinating. And to hear him try and articulate the hurt that he's feeling and the 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 sort of grievances that he has with Ted, it's equal parts revelatory and I don't know, like parts of it seem like incoherent to me. Like there's things you're still not saying or like emotions that he hasn't processed that he's like transposing onto Ted. And I don't know, like it's it's just it's such a devastating final conversation for them to have. It is hubris that is born out of hurt. And we talked a little bit last episode about how Nate stylistically and in substance, his trajectory is based off the very famous football manager, Jose Mourinho, the Portuguese manager who has managed a number of the biggest clubs in the world, including Chelsea, Manchester United, Real Madrid, Inter Milan. Uh, He's currently at, at Roma. And I was going through and just trying to remember what his career path has been like. And I came across a handful of his quotes. And this is a guy who, as he is a quote unquote matured, or I guess progresses as a manager, he's known for wearing all black. So the aesthetic that we see of Nate of the all black clothing, and then also the salt and pepper hair, that is Jose Mourinho. But these are actual things that Jose Mourinho has said in press conferences, like in public. People do not call me arrogant because what I say is true. I'm European champion. I'm not out, I'm not one out of the bottle. I think I'm a special one. He also said, God must really think I'm a great guy. <laughs> he has also said, we have top players. And sorry if I'm arrogant, we have a top manager. Oh, he was referring to himself. He was referring to himself. <laughs> and he also said... I have a problem, which is I'm getting better at everything related to my job since I started. Wow. And he said all this with a straight face. And so when we hear Nate say, I earned this, that's a much more concise way of packaging sort of how Jose Mourinho feels about himself. But what we know about Nate is the earning is crucial to his self-being because we find out more and more that he doesn't believe that he can just be loved by people for who he is. Right. And so his value then is like going to have to come from earning it. And if he's not getting that credit, then to himself, he's nothing. And see, that's another moment for me where I just like the communication breakdown is so wild because he's telling the person who probably recommended him for a promotion from his position of kit man that he earned something. It's like, of course Ted knows that like Ted was one of the first people to recognize that talent. And like when Jose Mourinho first came on at sporting Lisbon, he was like a team interpreter. Like he wasn't even a coach. And then he sort of rose through the ranks like Nate is doing now to, to these more prestigious positions. And so I don't know. It's just, it's such a wild attitude to have and obviously there's more going on but it's just doesn't make it hurt less the real like tipping point seems to be especially in this episode which is interesting i think with nate is the moment that roy doesn't get upset that he kissed keely it's been like that's been a deal for him like he wants to be viewed as a big dog and once again gets i guess put at the kid table or whatever in his eyes yeah and But none of that has to do with Ted and so much of his anger and like Mm -hmm. issues of like what's really frustrating him 
have nothing to do with Ted. He's just, you know, choosing someone to pour all this onto. And I mean, really, it's like everything makes, you know, he turns everything into him being the victim. And while Nate is complaining about everything and not seeing the real reason why he is somewhere and that he is valued and cared about and like propped up, you know, in these moments by Mm -hmm. Ted and the others, Ted's standing there saying like, why are you mad at me? What's going on? And instead of being upset, since he's the one who was actually hurt by Nate's actions, you know, in a huge way. He says, what do I have to learn from this? And I thought like that line, it's it's real soft and it goes by pretty quickly. Right. And Nate still is just like talking, talking, talking. But as I hear that, I think, dang, do I ever like say that when I'm in a, in a conversation with someone who's upset with me or when I'm upset with someone else? Like, what do I have to learn here? No, that is not my first reaction. <laughs> and so I just think, wow, Ted, you're you're a good guy because nope that mustache would come off and I would just like slap it back and forth over Nate's face like those old dueling gloves (laughs) what's really sad is and this may not have mattered if it came out but Ted asked that question what have I got to learn here and if they would have given him the answer in a way that Ted could have kind of understood it and processed it in real time then Maybe like some of this stuff could have been avoided. I don't know. Like maybe Nate would have just found something else. But one of the crux of Nate's grievances is that Ted is not displaying the photograph that Nate gave him for Christmas. And I I don't know whether Ted just chose not to tell Nate or sometimes when those things are happening, you're just trying to like take it all in and figure it out. And then things cool down and you realize, oh, I could have said this. And Nate probably wouldn't have been able to receive it. But that photo that Nate was berating Ted for not displaying in his office, the reason was because like it was at his house. Right. He was displaying it in a place that is even like more affectionate than an office. Yeah. Next to his pictures of his family. Yeah. 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 Right. And so Nate has created this story in his head mm-hmm. about that photo and its meaning to Ted. That is the opposite of the truth. And just like destroys him from the inside out. Right. Well, you know, it's one thing if that's brought up and Ted can likely respond faster if it's like an issue that's already come up or it's a grievance Nate has already talked about in the past. But, you know, clearly this is all brand new information for Ted. He's like receiving everything and he's totally on the back heel. And the moment where he mentions the picture not being there in the office and also when he says you need to go back to Kansas where you belong with your son, you know, like then we start to get at what this is really about, or at least a big part of what this is about. Like it's Nate's issues with his own father. And then he's sort of imposing those onto Ted. Not that, not to say that he may not have some legitimate grievances or there might not be a conversation to be had between him and Ted, but we're starting to get at like, okay, we're chasing a rabbit down a trail that isn't really related to what's happening in the office, but yeah, Yeah, it's not. It's still leading us on this chase that is counterproductive and destructive. They get a positive result with Nate's strategy. And he can't even handle that, right? Because even that wasn't 
isn't going to feel attributed to him because the team rallied around like that idea in the, you know, putting it in the belief sign. And I don't know, like, obviously that wreaks havoc in Nate's soul somehow that even though it was his strategy, he won't, he won't feel the credit for that. I, I don't know. He's, he's got some deep, deep issues to work through. He's got to do the work. Yeah. And then he does the work on this beautiful piece of DIY art. <laughs> Why? For something that we didn't see happen. We only saw the aftermath of it. It was incredibly painful. We don't see Nate rip the sign off and tear it. We just see the torn sign. And it was still so... I had such a visceral response to even just seeing that. I can't even imagine if they would have shown the whole thing like on camera. Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe more effective this way. Like it highlights the emptiness that you feel after that whole conversation, like the literal emptiness of Nate just sort of piecing out and being gone for the, you know, he's not going to be there for the celebration, the post-match, whatever, like he's just gone. And the fact that he not only like ripped it, took it down, ripped it, and then like places it right on Ted's desk. So like, you know, like this was fully intentional, like, no subtweet this is an at like because there's a version of this where he just rips it off and it's on the floor and everyone sees it but no he wanted ted to find it on his desk and be like this is personal basically and i don't know it's it yeah it's a punch to the gut and the nuts like it it sucks i felt it deep in my ovaries too and but like maybe it fell down and like (laughs) He, he slipped on it, on it and it like you know like tap number where it just like split apart no it it really hurts and i don't know like why a piece of paper like matters that much but it does because that's what like started ted lasso right that, that's how we see that image and it just feels like this childlike hope in that everything in the world is going to be okay right even the way it's designed there's just some there's it's not perfect right it's hanging askew and you know he has this like ugly tape just thrown up there but i don't know life's not perfect but you know you can always believe that something will get better or there's hope in the belief and so yeah man nate tore that and tore all of our souls and hearts along with it Christian, you and Marissa almost always prompt me at this point to talk about the music, but I'm going to flip the script because I know there was a song you were particularly excited about talking about that happened in this episode. And it was Yankee and the Brave by Run the Jewels for a couple of reasons. Like, number one, I love Run the Jewels. Number two, that song is run through a wall music if you listen to it. It will give you superhuman powers and allow you to <laughs> for at achieve, least five minutes. Uh, yeah, at least five minutes. I achieve great things, and then the fact that they punctuated this season with it and put that at the end and really disrupted, I guess, what felt like was going to be a peaceful landing was awesome. Yeah, because right before that, we have the there's a the Keelian Roy vacation. Are we not? Question mark. Uh, but then we have the very nice like, oh, Sam's going to open a Nigerian restaurant. Good he's place bringing, to land the plane. He's bringing a little bit of home to London and it's going to be great for him. And then 
oh no the imperial <laughs> march starts like playing we see these like stormtroopers of west ham players running across the pitch and rupert comes and whispers into nate's ear and then we zoom all the way in and this song just blares and yeah you're right like it is just so intense yeah that moment nate's like crazy black swan calm and then this like da 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 is just like oh no what is gonna happen that, that was all is, i remember feeling and that's the opening song for run the jewels for that is how they introduce themselves on their fourth album and kind of just how they roll they they tend to roll with that intensity yeah one of the interesting things about run the jewels for is that it's constructed in such a way that you could play it on a loop. This Yankee and the Brave, the idea is that there's kind of a late 70s, early 80s television show intro that they're playing out. And that plays out specifically at the end of the last song of the album in this show. It's not Dukes of Hazard, it's Yankee and the Brave. And so you get like the intro tagged on to the end of the last song. And then if you just run the album straight back, this is what you get to start off the album. So you could listen to it on a loop. One interesting thing that as you've used all of this um, Star Wars imagery is one of the lines that they didn't use from the song. LP has uh, these bars, stack addict, a Mac with the blackest fabric on back. And the fact that that is now Nate's aesthetic I was just surprised that they chose like to edit the song in such a way that they didn't use that. But, you know, we, we all know it's there. Yeah. Well, the lyric that brings us into the song, I did think was an interesting choice. That lyric is it's scammer bliss when you put in villains in charge of shit. And going back to a line that happens just a few minutes earlier in the episode, Ted tells Trent, you know, like the man says, you got to follow your bliss. And so, you know, we, he, in that context with Trent, it's like, okay, he's given up reporting. He wants to do something that gives him more meaning that he finds more important or valuable. And so transposing that onto Nate, it's like, yeah, he's, he's chasing what he thinks is going to give him meaning and make him feel validated and whole and give him purpose. Will it? <laughs> TBD. <laughs> but that's, you know, I think that's where he's at right now is like he's on that achievement train. And like that's the only thing that's going to give him value at this moment, or at least probably how he feels about it. So I did, I did like ultimately the lyric that was in there. But yeah, once you pointed that out, it's like, yeah, it would have made sense. <laughs> he's in his all black everything and at the West Ham training ground. I have two other things I want to point out that um, are totally braggadocious. One, I was completely unsurprised that Nate ended up at West Ham from the moment that Rupert gave up his shares to Rebecca. That is a very well-known thing in sports. Like you can't own two teams at once in most leagues. Sometimes people try to get away with it in Italy, but you know, shade Meisters, Marissa. I feel like you're looking right <laughs> at me when you say that, Christian. Only because I'm trying to bait you into a reaction. <laughs> So I did, I've prognosticated a lot of things incorrectly about this show, but I totally got- You should go that, see a doctor about that. I totally got that Rupert was going to have a team and that he was going to bring Nate on. The second thing that I would like to point out that is completely braggadocious is there are a lot of fans of Run the Jewels on the cast of Ted Lasso. In fact, a lot of them went to Run the Jewels concert together 
while they were filming season three. And Jason has been very conspicuously wearing Run the Jewels shirts all around London during filming. He's got a nice light pink one that he likes to wear, and he's got a black one that he likes to wear too. And I have a feeling that our podcast Christmas card is going to include that black Run the Jewels hooded sweatshirt because Jason Sudeikis was wearing it when we did the fan kid thing and got a picture of him (laughs) with us recently in Kansas City. I was very happy that he was wearing that sweatshirt. (laughs) Among other things I was happy about right at that moment as we got a picture with him. (laughs) Well, there weren't a lot of songs in this episode, actually. So I want to point out one more interesting thing. Speaking of Nate going to West Ham and music, this song, disclaimer, not on the episode, but Christian, did you know that West Ham's team anthem is a song called I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles? I did, but a lot of people probably don't. Yeah. Guess what? It's another American musical theater Broadway song. English football teams stay using the American musical theater songbook. And I just want to point out that Nate needs to be careful here as we're <laughs> as we're prognosticating about the future, because the chorus of this song says, I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. They fly so high, nearly reach the sky. Then, like my dreams, they fade and die. Fortune's always hiding. I've looked everywhere. I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. One of the reasons that I was excited that West Ham was the choice of club is because they literally blow bubbles at matches, like bubbles in mass. It's a really cool, fun visual. And I'm hoping that is something that we do get to see in season three is the bubbles blowing over the pitch at West Ham. Yes, that will be really cool, actually. There were two several really great pop culture references in this episode there were like a ton of callbacks um especially as you pointed out christian to me when we were talking about this episode on the video board during the match and this is something i had not noticed and you said oh there were so many and i had to go back and rewatch just to appreciate the 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 world building and the kind of it collapsing in on itself as we saw all these ads on the video boards at nelson road Part of the issue is they crammed most of them into the second half of the match. And so match-wise and narrative-wise, there was a lot going on. But we see an ad for Kafka, which is the coffee vodka that (laughs) Keely was a spokesperson for. An ad for Donner Kebabs, the kebab stand that Ted and Roy meet up at, or that I guess Ted ambushes Roy at. Uh, Shipley's Steakhouse, which is apparently a steakhouse chain. Because there's a Shipley Steakhouse in Liverpool that Keeley does the advertisement for in the hotel. And then there's also the Shipley Steakhouse that the double date happens with Rebecca and the boring Mr. Wings Knight. Yes, that's it. <laughs> totally forgettable Mr. <laughs> Wings Knight and Keeley and Roy. Uh, there's an ad for... Darnsteiner beer, which... Oh, yes. Yeah. Jamie's unicorn. Yes. No, Brunicorn. <laughs> yes, yes. Brunicorn. <laughs> and then, obviously, uh, Verani Sports, which is the fictional kit maker for right. AFC Richmond. That I hope their business does okay because they're getting replaced by Nike in season wah, three. But wah. it was a good run while it lasted. Two seasons. <laughs> One of my favorite mentions, pop culture-wise, was at the beginning when Ted hands Rebecca her biscuits... And then 
they're awful. But then she's like, no, I kind of like this. They're salty, just like Heather Locklear from <laughs> Heather Locklear's character from Melrose Place. <laughs> and then she's like, ooh, Heather. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought that was funny because that was like a show that I wasn't allowed to watch because it was like too grown up, yeah. you know. But I just remember like acting like I knew about it at school because people whose parents didn't care about them, like let them watch it. <laughs> and so I would always like act like I knew what was going on, even though I only knew it was about like people living in an apartment complex in West Hollywood. But that and was doing it. Yeah, I knew they did like naughty things. Yeah. yeah. But that was all. Another hilarious TV moment that's a little bit meta in this episode is when Ted and Beard are talking in the pub. And Beard says something like, if you keep all your emotions bottled in, I'm afraid your mustache is going to pop off. And then Ted says, oh, I'd look like that fella from The Hangover. And Beard says, Bradley Cooper. And Ted kind of has this knowing grin and says, you're too good to me. Because the joke. Well, let me tell you the, what the joke is, because I actually had to tell you in real life, Brett, <laughs> because he, I was like, oh, that's funny. And then he's like, well, it's it's Bradley Cooper. I was like, no, he looks like the guy from Hangover. I couldn't remember his name. And he's like, Bradley Cooper. I'm like, no, Brett, that's not why it's funny. It's because he looks like Ed Helms. <laughs> and apparently that's like a thing on the Internet. Right, Brett? Yes, I'm a little slow on the uptake sometimes. So it took me a minute to totally get the joke. But there is a longstanding just sort of internet meme culture joke about how Ed Helms and Jason Sudeikis are the same person. In fact, there's an article where Jason Sudeikis talks about being approached by a fan of the office to get a photograph with him. And then when he introduced himself and they realized it was the wrong person, the photographers were very embarrassed because they definitely thought he was Ed Helms. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, Instead of saying he looks like Ed Helms, he gets the uh, the quote unquote looks upgrade of Bradley Cooper, the, the smolder effect. And so I just thought that was a nice, funny moment. I guess it's not really a pop culture moment, but something I found hilarious was how between when episode 11 and episode 12 aired after Trent Krim gave up his source to Ted. Right. Right. At the end of episode at 11. the episode 11, there were a lot of media members who are very quick to jump online and just eviscerate Trent Krim. Ah, a proper media member would never give up their source. Yes, you could hear the pearls being clutched. There was much pearl clutching. There was uh, a rush for people to go and acquit themselves (laughs) in light of Trent Krim's abhorrent behavior never mind the fact that there's a fictional tv show and we're talking about some dude that used to coach american football now coaching soccer for whatever reason the media felt like this part the depiction of trent cram had to be a documentary <laughs> and so then when trent cram you know like quits his job gets fired whatever and you it comes to light that essentially he viewed his actions in the same way that the media members did I thought it was pretty hilarious because I am and always will be team Trent and his glorious hair. Yeah. I wonder if some of that anger was slightly misdirected and people had seen Trent as a, a journalist with integrity and were upset that his character maybe would have done something that lacked said integrity, but 
it all comes full circle when we find out, hey, he he knew what he was doing. He was ready for something new. And he was it was it was an easy out for him to kind of go and follow his bliss. He was super integrous. Very integrous. Why does he lock his keys in his car, though? I feel like Trent Cream would have his life together a little bit more. Yeah, you would think so. But hopefully he has whatever. Seems like a weird moment. Hopefully he has whatever the British equivalent is of triple A. Yeah. Triple OI. We got a couple of chess moves from the writers in this episode. It's almost like a Jedi mind trick where they set people up and read their I like their how reactions. you always try to bring everything back to Star Wars. Well, I mean, you know, it is in the Bible. And <laughs> there was the Trent Krim one, but then there was the other long game too, because people were really upset that the season started with the death of a dog, which I'm much more sympathetic to than like the whole Trent Krim pearl clutching because people like have these emotional attachments to their pets and I, it, it really came out of nowhere. And so you <laughs> a show with a lot of death. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was blood. And while on the one hand I could see the gory humor of it on the other hand, that would have been a lot for people. And so <laughs> then for them to come back in the last episode and have the little puppies and have puppy adoption and to put a nice bow and redemptive moment for that. I thought, did not only make me feel good, but just give me a moment of pause to think, man, they're playing 3D chess while the rest of us really get caught up in the moment and are playing checkers. Chess, not checkers, baby. So pushing the ball a little bit further down the field. We talked about West Ham, mm. but there are a couple of other soccer things we should probably mention before we leave this season totally in the rear view. One of those is kind of spoilery. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't necessarily have a least soccer thing to talk about, but... Looking back, it is worth pointing out that Apple and the Ted Lasso Brain Trust do a really good job of keeping secrets. Unfortunately, not everybody does a good job of keeping (laughs) secrets. Someone missed the memo. Someone missed the memo, and I don't think it was Apple or the Ted Lasso folks. I think it was somebody in England. But a news bit came out, and I'm pretty sure it came out between when episode 11 and episode 12 aired sometime during that week. It was definitely before episode 12. Yeah, it was definitely before episode 12. And the news bit that came out was that for the next season, for season three of Ted Lasso, Apple had secured Premier League image rights, which was a big deal. It's like, why would you need those if you weren't going to be in the Premier League? (laughs) Right. So, and there were a lot of numbers with it. Like Apple paid almost $700,000 to allow the show's producers to, quote, add Premier League club logos, club kits, archive footage. I mean, did we all not know it was going there? We knew it was just funny that this came out and then you were certain that it was going there because they wouldn't have paid three quarters of a million dollars if they weren't probably going to have AFC Richmond somehow, some way. Play in the Premier League for season four. Well, I, I appreciate too that like the writers and everyone on the show like also created a season finale that didn't hinge on the game like it did yeah. the first season. Like it was not, I mean, in every viewer's mind, we already knew it was going to happen, right? And they, they didn't even create you that, believed. that sort of, well, you know, <laughs> they didn't even like build that tension to where it felt like the whole show was going to like hinge on the the outcome of this game, right? It felt like a very minor thing comparatively to all the other character conflicts going on. It only took up the most air in the room for a very short amount of time relative to 
the first season's final yes. episode. Totally. Yes. You're worried about it for about three minutes in the locker room and then it's like, oh, okay, well, they're scoring now. We're going to do this thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. And sometimes we have, like you said, very casual soccer audiences. And I just want to make sure we mention this in case we haven't before. West Ham United is an absolute real team. Yes, <laughs> it is a real team. It operates in an interesting space because it's not what a lot of people would consider, especially on the international stage, one of the biggest teams. Right. It's not one of the teams that people who don't follow soccer would recognize. If you say Manchester United or Arsenal or Chelsea or Liverpool, those are in the zeitgeist. West Ham United isn't necessarily that, but it's a club that for not at that top tier has a remarkable number of prominent supporters and part owners. James Corden is a supporter of West Ham United. Who also is obsessed with Broadway. Also obsessed with Broadway, yes. He would be a great addition for a bit part in Ted Lasso yes. season three. Oh my god! Soccer and Broadway. Yes. Um, Seth Myers is associated with West Ham United. We did invite him on the show, and I will say that the people at NBC gave us what I think is tied for the most thorough and polite rejection. <laughs> Seth Myers people and Brene's Brown people both gave us, I would imagine, at least three minutes in pinning their rejections to come on our show. And I appreciate them for that because it made me feel seen. Back to the, <laughs> back to the main point. Uh, however, West Ham is a real club and it's a, a sizable club. Um, and it's, I think, uh, also a London club. Right. So it's a reasonable rival for AFC Richmond. Yes. The other most soccery thing that I loved is when Richmond got promoted and in the in the pub they're saying that we are going up we are going up chant that is very much a real chant and anytime a club gets promoted in England you are going to hear their fans singing that chant even if promotion is like a distant glimmer of hope in the future. Like, <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's aspirational. It is an aspirational, yes. like, no spoilies, but if you watch Welcome to Wrexham, you're going to hear that very chant. I was like, oh, deja vu. I just yeah. heard this this week when I was catching up on Welcome to Wrexham. So, yeah, I, I loved that, that that authenticity was there for sure. The other two little authentic things, one is the false nine is truly a legitimate soccer strategy that is talked about a lot and implemented on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And then when Akufu, when he gives Sam the number 10 shirt, that is very prestigious. I wouldn't say that it's like the 23 shirt in basketball necessarily <laughs> because it's not associated with a single player, but it is a number that denotes a place of honor on the team, somebody who is expected to score a lot and it's a shirt that you don't take unless you think you are going to be the dude or the lady, such as it were. Yeah, it's it's definitely the shirt of a top performer and a leader yeah. on the squad. Yeah. So when he's presented with that shirt, that is part of the wooing process specifically in regard to that number. Which Premier League teams and other top leagues are very strict and specific about like numbers and who wears them. Yeah. Typically uh, kind of traditionally defined to positions and right. your starters, your better players would have those one through 11 shirts. Y'all, this will be the last time we do this for 
Season two. What was your favorite, Brett? I alluded to this one before, but I would like to share it in full and go on the record as saying this is a quote that I think about a lot from this episode. And it's the advice that Higgins gives to Keeley when she comes to him several he, he's several people down on her list of advice givers, but he's happy to be on the list. And he tells her, a good mentor hopes you'll move on. A great one knows you will. And I don't know which which of y'all came up with that in the writer's room, but I think that's a great bit of wisdom because it is helpful for both sides, like mm-hmm. the mentor and the mentee. Like as the mentee, you you need to strive to kind of go beyond that box that you're in. But as the mentor it's good to remember that this is why you're doing what you're doing is to help someone flourish and to thrive. And so I just, I really love that bit of advice from Higgins. What about you, Christian? What was your favorite? You went with advice given to Keeley. I'll go with the line from Keeley. Richmond is my football club. You know that. It's all of our clubs. It's all of our club till we die. It has my heart. Marissa, what about you? Close us out. I absolutely love the moment where it cuts to the guys in the locker room and Ted says, it's like a Renaissance painting depicting masculine melancholy. And we get all of them just in their brooding, melancholy, handsomeness. And then in what I assume is an improv moment, Will drops his water (laughs) bottle and quickly picks it up like, oops, oh no. (laughs) Yes, perfect. Classic Will. Classic Will. That is our show. If you'd like to dive even deeper into the themes of this episode, you can find even more Ted Lasso content in our show notes. You'll find the link in the episode description. You can also keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on both platforms is at Ted Lasso Pod. It's a great way for us to connect with each other and for y'all to share your insights on the show. This episode of Richmond Till We Die is brought to you by Gin and Kerosene Productions. It was produced by me, Christian. Me, Marissa. And me, Brett. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to subscribe to Richmond Till We Die on whatever app you're using to listen to this episode. If you have access to an Apple device, we'd love it if you'd head over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a quick five-star review. It'll help more people find and hear the show. I'm Marissa signing off for Christian and Brett. Thanks for listening. And until next time, cheers, y'all. Night Court.